Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurungai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's your week? I'm good. My week has been good. Nothing too exciting. How about you? I'm like sick. Oh no. <laughs> he says this as if he does not know this information. This is brand new to me. <laughs> this started like 15 minutes ago. Just randomly got sick. So we're just going to try and persevere and finish this episode without me being too unwell, hopefully. But my apologies in advance if I sound a bit unwell. You sound I- fine to me. Okay. Well, I hope none of you guys can like really tell or if it bothers you. My bad. I happen to be sick. It sucks for everybody involved. <laughs> um, but yeah, how has my week been? My week's been okay. I've actually been working a lot. I have been listening to a lot of podcast episodes, actually. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you'd know that I've been talking about You're Wrong About, uh, which is like my new favorite thing ever. I love it so much. I have binged a ridiculous amount of episodes and they're like long as well. They're like an hour plus most of the episodes. And I look... For somebody who, like, does a podcast, I do struggle to listen to podcasts. I Like, I have trouble, like, listening to the whole thing. And I have just been binging these episodes, like, constantly because I'm enjoying them so much. And they're really good. And something that I've been thinking about a lot is an episode that I came across by You're Wrong About. So as I was perusing through their catalogue looking for another episode to listen to, they had one about the children's movie Anastasia, which if you're, like within the same generation as me, you would have seen, especially if you're a young girl, you would have seen it many, many, many times. I watched it a ridiculous amount of times when I was like, I don't know, seven? When did it come out? It was 1997. Young. Okay, yeah, well, before I was born. So that means that I, I grew up watching it. Um, and I saw it, I was like, oh, Anastasia. Like, yeah, that rings a bell. I remember Anastasia. I remember really enjoying it. I remember like one kind of final scene from the movie. And so I started listening to it and then I was like, actually, you know what? I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch Anastasia because why not? It's on Disney+. Plus. And then I rewatch it. What the actual fuck was I consuming as a child? Oh, my God. There were some politics in there that were questionable at best. Um, and I have some thoughts about it and that is kind of what we're going to get into today we're going to talk about like children's movies and the politics that are inherent to children's movies and the kind of propaganda that comes from that but before we get into that we're going to do some follow-up some big news this week yeah facebook has brought news back online after banning all australian news media last week uh, which is what we talked about a little bit in last week's podcast episode Basically, what's happened is that Facebook has agreed to actually reverse the ban after the government said it would make amendments to the laws that Facebook was revolting against in the first place, which includes giving Facebook more time to strike deals with potential like media publishers. Really interesting, very curious to see where this goes, because I do wonder who Facebook is going to strike deals with and how much they're willing to pay companies and if this is going to be open to like independent small publishers or if it's only really going to be big publishers that get deals 
We all know Facebook is pretty stingy in that regard. Also interesting to note how this is going to affect the world when it comes to Facebook, because I think we talked about it briefly last week, but um, other commentators and leaders in other countries, particularly in like America, UK, like that kind of er- those kind of areas, uh, have been talking about how this sets a precedent and how Facebook is fighting the Australian um, new media laws because they don't want other countries to follow suit and then they're going to lose a huge part of their revenue having to pay people for their content. So it's like actually a ginormous shakeup of how Facebook's economy works and how like money in general kind of works in the media field. So yeah, big deal. I guess we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I feel like the main thing from this whole conundrum is just it's put into perspective who has control over what we see and how easily that can just be taken away from us when the main medium we get news and communicate through is privately owned by, you know, a single billionaire. Um, The second piece of follow-up I have is unfortunately not good news. It's very tragic, actually. Um, We obviously talked extensively about Brittany Higgins' uh, sexual assault allegations last week. Uh, Since then, another sexual assault allegation made its way to the news, but it was actually not anything to do with Brittany Higgins' situation. It was by another woman about something that happened in the 80s. So so she accused um, a current cabinet minister of raping her in, I think it was 1988, when she was 16. The allegations were actually made in 2020 last year when it was being investigated, but the investigation was suspended because, unfortunately, she committed suicide. It's like a really, really tragic story, but it's kind of come back into media relevance at the moment, obviously, because sexual assault is in the news cycle, especially with the Liberal Party. We don't know who the cabinet minister is that has been accused. He's denying it. Uh, Scott Morrison is like basically saying things like, you know, well, I'm not going to like call anyone anything until we have the facts. Like, I'm not going to fire somebody over, you know, decades old allegations. There's been really gross kind of commentary in the media about like, well, if she only reported it now, can we really believe it? Which first of all is dumb because it wasn't now, it was a year ago. But second of all, uh, completely irrelevant. She was also 16 at the time. And we know how useless our justice system is in dealing with these kind of situations. Most people don't report their sexual assaults. But anyway, really, really tragic situation. And I guess there was a bit of a will they, won't they in the news this week with people talking about the police because initially the police said that they were going to investigate it um the case was referred by people in the parliament to the afp and it was all like oh like are we finally going to get actual things happening (laughs) are we finally going to start seeing the way we treat sexual assault cases shift given the current news cycle unfortunately the answer is no because just today new south Wales police has decided that they are dropping the investigation into this uh, alleged rape by the cabinet minister because of, quote, insufficient admissible evidence. This is like a common thing to happen if the person who is the victim in the scenario is no longer alive because they're no longer there to testify in court. But it's also garnered a lot of criticism because people are like, this case is not new. You have a lot of information and evidence already. Like her friends have been very vocal in the situation, um, giving their own evidence. There's like a photograph of her and the cabinet minister on the night of the alleged rape, like at a party together. And she's already like given a lot of testimonies and things because this is not a new case. It's not even a new investigation. So other people are just saying there's no, like you can still, you should still be investigating this just because she's no longer here with us. Doesn't mean you should stop investigating this. But yeah, the police have announced they're not, which is just, I mean, unsurprising, but tragic. So yeah, fuck the police. And also fuck the Australian government. 
Anyway, let's get into our actual topic about today. Not as high stakes and, yeah. and depressing as that, thankfully. Today is going to be a bit easier, I think, for all of us. It's nice for me too, just being a bit sick and out of it. We're going to have a more fun conversation than usual. We are going to be talking about kids' movies. We're going to talk about Anastasia. We're going to talk about Disney princesses. We're going to talk about Barbie and Bluey. I fucking love Bluey so much. Um, but yeah, let's get into it today. Let's start talking about politics and kids' films. So the reason we want to talk about kids' films today, and specifically start off with Anastasia, is because today we're interested in the way films and media and literally everything come to present a very specific worldview, where we want to know whether or not something can be completely neutral or apolitical, or does every single story somehow highlight a specific way of interpreting the world? And is this done intentionally? Uh, like, is there some you know evil propaganda master behind everything? Or is this unconscious and completely unavoidable as filmmakers and viewers? We want to know how do children's films reinforce a specific way of seeing on the issues of capitalism, gender, colonialism, race, and our ideas of the future? Is everything propaganda? Short answer, spoiler alert, yes. yes. Long answer, about to come. It's complicated. <laughs> so Anastasia, let's talk about Anastasia. I, from what I remembered about Anastasia before I actually rewatched it a couple of days ago, was that it was just about like a Russian girl who like gets separated from her family, loses her memory, and then like finds out that she's a princess. And there's like a really hot love interest who's Dimitri, who was like my crush. <laughs> and yeah, that was kind of all I remember. And it was like some evil guy who did like green magic. So very vague ideas. Um, what it's actually about, for those of you who haven't seen Anastasia, it's an animated film. It's actually not a Disney film, contrary to popular belief. It's, by, it's a Don Bluth film. He used to be part of, like, the Disney animation um, studio, but then him and a bunch of animators all, like, left together after, like, bad worker conditions, and he started his own animation studio. He did, like, The Land Before Time and The Secret of Nim and stuff like that. So you would know him from, like, the 80s and 90s mostly. But yeah, basically the story is actually about Anastasia Romanov, who is part of the Romanov royal family in Russia in the early kind of 1900s. Um, her family all gets killed because of the evil guy in the show, in the movie called Rasputin. I'm sure a lot of you guys know who Rasputin is just because he's the guy that all those myths went around about, about having a ginormous penis. Like, what? <laughs> that is, no, that is honestly why I know who Rasputin is. This is new is. to me. You don't know this? No. Okay, we're going to go on a slight tangent because it's funny. But Rasputin is someone quite well known if you were ever on Tumblr or anything during like the 2010s because there was this like story going around about how like, and it's like this part is like somewhat true about how like a museum had these like ginormous geni- like male genitalia preserved and it was like supposedly Rasputin's ginormous ridiculously huge penis because there's all these stories about him being an incredible lover um and he like had this really like this life of just like sleeping with all these women and and he like had a lot of ties to like the royal family and everybody was like he's doing this because he's persuading women with his magical penis and you know he just like was apparently sleeping with all these women and having amazing sex with hundreds upon hundreds of conquests and there's just weird stories around Rasputin's uh sexual life however it was proven to like not be his penis i'm pretty sure it may have been like a sea cucumber or something <laughs> like that this a is a sea cucumber I, I 
think so. I don't know how 100% factually accurate this is. This is just what I know of like internet culture when I was on Tumblr. But this is what like people, especially people my age who weren't really into politics or Russian history, that's what they would have known Rasputin for. If you guys are listening to this and you've heard of the whole Rasputin giant penis thing, I want to know because I'm fairly sure that's how a lot of people know Rasputin. And does this play a big role in the film? No. (laughs) I that was just a tangent because that's what I thought it was Rasputin. Like I don't think of him as like an evil guy because I don't really know enough about him. But then I'm watching Anastasia and yeah, he is the villain in the show. He's the one who like kills the Romanov family. Anastasia survives, loses her memory, is like an orphan. And then eventually, like, finds her way back. And, you know, the story is, like, the whole movie is pretty much just about the journey from St. Petersburg, Russia, to France, where she's being taken by Dimitri Akonatis to find her, like, grandma or whatever. And he's basically trying to teach her to, like, fake being Anastasia because she doesn't remember that she's Anastasia. Um, And then he's going to get all the reward money from, like, bringing back Anastasia. But then she is Anastasia. (sighs) Oh, my goodness. And he, like, is actually the one that saved her. And there's just, you know, like, cute romance. Actually, their romance is very cute. Can I just say, upon... There are some problematic elements of the film that we are going to get into in a second. But their romance, A+. Amazing. Very good. Very good work, Don Bluth. I feel like it was better than most Disney romances. But anyway... Yeah, so that's basically the premise of the movie. Rasputin is, like, some evil sorcerer. Like, literally, like, a sorcerer with, like, green magic and, like, a talking bat accomplice and stuff like that. And when you're a kid and you watch that, you really don't really question it. Even, like, the Romanov family dying. It's just like, oh, Rasputin hated them and, like, killed them. And that's kind of what I remembered. That's not what happens in the movie. And it's actually really interesting what the movie does. Because Anastasia is a real person. She's like, the Romanov family, they're like real people. Like, this is real history. Rasputin's a real person too. Although not actually as closely related to the story as this movie makes him to be. He was not like huge enemies with the Romanovs. And he actually died two years before this whole story even begins. So he's like, actually in real life, not super relevant. But yeah, the Romanov family are a real family. They were the family in rule before the Russian Revolution. Um, like Nicholas, who was Anastasia's father and like the king or the czar, He was the one in charge. He was, like, a tyrant and, like, anti-Semitic and also just, like, problematic in the way that all all royal families are in the sense that their people are poor and starving while they're, like, rich and comfortable. And he made, like, really fucking poor decisions during World War I, leading to the avoidable deaths of many Russians. And then eventually the Russian people revolted. And they are actually not the ones who slaughter the Romanov family, so... They actually don't immediately die. They get moved about. They get, like, taken by the Bolsheviks. And then there's, like, other armies that want them because they're obviously very good hostages to have, especially because back then everybody's, like, related. Like, literally everyone, like, every single royal family in the Europe, like, European, like, continent is fucking related. So they're, they're good. They've got connections. Very, very handy hostages to have. But they are eventually slaughtered quite, like, I will say quite awfully. I mean... I didn't give a fuck about the Tsar, to be honest. People can kill him how he wants. His daughters were like teenage girls who were also killed. Anastasia was the youngest daughter. Um, and that's kind of where this story comes from because obviously the the movie has t- taken like the myth of it because it was like a real actual myth. Because, I mean, you guys can listen to the You're Wrong about this podcast episode about Anastasia for the full details. But like their, their murders are quite bungled and it's all a bit fucked up and like it's all a bit ambiguous. And people are like... Did, did she survive? Did she not survive? And there were actually real myths. And there was like a woman called Anna Anderson who came back and was all like, I'm, I'm Anastasia. And like, she's a real person too. After her death with DNA testing, they proved it wasn't her. And I mean, we now know with like absolute facts because of DNA testing that actually all the Romanovs 
died at the same time. They were murdered, whatever. But I think the key part that I want to mention here is that the Romanov family was killed as a direct result of the Russian Revolution because the Tsar was a bad guy who was fucking terrible to his people and really caused their suffering. And then they revolted against him. And then eventually the, the Bolsheviks killed him. And that is important to know because the bit that I was just so fucking shocked about when re-watching Anastasia is that um, how the movie does it is that Rasputin is this evil sorcerer who for unnamed reasons hates the Romanov family and particularly the Tsar. Like it's just not explored at all in the film. And then he's like, you know what? I curse you all to die. I hate you all. My, you know, with my dying breath, I'm going to make sure your, your line is ended. Um, and then he, this is the part that I just think is fucking, you know, just ridiculous. He curses them and using his creepy underworld magic forces the Russian people to revolt and kill the Romanovs. Um, so it's not like they had a revolution because they were poor, starving people that were like, very awfully oppressed. It was an evil curse. That made them do it. And then they were like, oh, no, the Romanovs are dead. And now our lives are so, so sad. What have we done? What have we done? It's just like there's no agency in the situation. And the Romanov family are not criticized in this film. They are obviously the heroes because they have to be because Anastasia is the princess and she is the hero of this movie and she is the main character. And so their deaths are like considered as these really tragic, unnecessary killing of a lovely family that actually people really did like them. And, you know, it was just this curse that like made people kill them and the people like regretted it and their lives became significantly worse afterwards. And like, while like, yes, we can have conversations about after the Russian revolution, things were pretty shit under Stalin, obviously, but I have an issue with the way this film presents the monarchist family as good and as like ideal rulers and they show any deviation from wanting the monarchists as their rulers to be like punished and like to be bad and it kind of reinforces this monarchist propaganda that like any other way of governing a society is inevitably going to fail and then those people are going to regret it and they're going to wish they hadn't done that, which is what happens in Anastasia because after the, like, I mean, I'm going to say revolution, but it's not a revolution in the movie. People are, like, really sad that they've done it. And then when there are rumors that Anastasia is alive, they're like, oh, you know, how cool, how interesting. And they're all, like, really excited and elated to, like, think that perhaps one of the royals is alive. But they're, like, the ones that killed her or her family in the movie. So it's very weird, very inconsistent messaging and it's really like this movie really demonizes the working class the way it portrays russian working class people as first of all having literally no agency of course they would never want to kill the czar like obviously they were out of of their minds at the moment like they were under control of an external influence you know they were happy everything was fine now they're poor and sad see that's what happens when you overthrow monarchies if you bite the hand that feeds you yeah, very well, very much so is what the movie is telling us. Even like there's actually lines in the song that say, oh, since the revolution, our lives have been so grey. And it's like, I mean, yes, but like that's not because the Romanovs died. There are obviously other circumstances with like and issues with the communist rule at the time. But my issue is like how this movie essentially spent quite a lot of time critiquing communist uprising and communism in general, but spent absolutely no time at all critiquing the Tsar 
and the way that the monarchy was ruling people because it was bad. Like, happy people don't start revolutions. Things were obviously not fucking good. Like, neither situations were very good for the Russian people, but there were obviously still issues and the Tsar was still a bad guy. And this all happened, like, after World War I and after all the shit they went through after World War I. And, look, I don't expect a children's movie to have all the nuances of politics but i do think it's weird can movies like this just exist as innocent you know artistic kind of oh we just took creative license we just like saw a potential interesting story to tell and went with it or are they inherently political and like actively propaganda i do find this film to be an incredibly i guess interesting case of the way revolution or any sort of transgressive force can be presented we're definitely no Russian historians and we're definitely not Stalin apologists. We have plenty of issues with Soviet Russia, but there are plenty of accounts of the, the revolution of 1917 being very great for the Russian people. You know, the, the, the Russians after the revolution, apparently it was fucking lit, at least for a little bit. And what I find so fascinating is that what the film ultimately presents is that the only way that a revolution could happen is not because of any material circumstances, not because of resentment and consciousness from the working class, but the only real explanation could be some malevolent force, some curse, and it decides to exclude everything else from that context. And while it is a kid's movie, it does present any transgression from the status quo as being evil as being malevolent as being sort of supernaturally transgressive yeah exactly it kind of reminds me of like when we saw that whole i mean we see this trend kind of all the time but like of like evil teenagers we see a lot of stories and like movies about like wow look at these evil teenagers that are into satanism and sex and they are rude to their parents and stuff and it kind of reminds me of that because it's always this idea of like demonology and like satanic panic and stuff like that when i mean Kids are probably acting out because their parents are kind of shitty and they're, like, disillusioned about the world because of, like, bad, you know, material conditions and, like, climate change and blah, blah, blah. And, like, people never just do bad shit and they're just bad. Like, that's just not how the world works. Almost always when a group of people are reacting to something, it's usually, like, for a reason, especially when those people are oppressed, like, working class people, like, young people. You know what I mean? So... I find that very interesting, especially just going back to the Tsar a bit, because I'm just still so taken aback by the romanticizing of the Romanov family. Because you know what? You can romanticize like Anastasia specifically if you want to, because she was like 16 when she died and she didn't exactly like have say over how Russia was being ruled. So I don't like care about her. I'm not here to be like Anastasia was evil because I don't care. But my interest is in the Tsar because like, I don't know if any of you guys know what like the Bloody Sunday is, but it's like thing that happened in St. Petersburg where the Tsar literally like got his military to open fire on peaceful protesters and basically shut them all the fuck up and they all like died and it was like a really awful massacre and it was obviously part of the reason that a lot of the Russian people really grew to hate the Tsar like this is something that led up to the revolution again like not a good guy and not even not a good guy in the way that all royals were not good people but like specifically actually a bad guy that's why the Russian people revolted. And I'm just, I keep repeating that, but it's because monarchist propaganda relies on the idea of like good rulers, of nice rulers, but benevolent rulers, about like these kings and queens and princesses and whatever. Like they are so good at maintaining peace. They're nice people that are friends with everybody. And if those people, if the peasants and the working class ever for any reason are 
if they're ever at odds with the monarchy, it is never for like an actual reason. It's because they're under a curse or because, you know, the evil sorcerer is involved or because they have misinterpreted something or because they don't actually know the whole truth of the situation. The curse is really interesting in the way that it removes agency from working class people because I feel like that is actually very interesting propaganda. I think it is within the state's interest to make people feel like they aren't actually capable of things like that. Not that I want us to be capable of, you know, killing people, but I think it's interesting how they want to push the idea that these things don't happen unless extraordinary means like magic are involved. People don't do this. This is not a reality. This is not possible. Because then, you know, we don't consider that as being something that would ever happen. And things like revolution, which are already quite mystified, I think, as well. I mean, we joke about revolutions constantly. Those things aren't actually realistic. They don't actually happen. They're just a fantasy. And so while this might be a negative way of showing revolutions, still as a fantasy, it is interesting to paint an entire people as just working through through magic, through cursing. And even though we don't actually see what really happens, it's quite vague in Anastasia. But I think it's worth discussing not just the romanticizing of the Romanovs, but like the lack of agency of the working class and then their continual demonization in the movie. And exactly like what could possibly trigger a revolution except some, you know, evil, evil force. Yeah, why else would people revolt against their rulers? And it's just, it really, I mean, it really advocates for monarchism as like a quality form of governance and the only form of governance because anything else is is rigged. It's with malicious magic. It's fucking Satanism. <laughs> well, you know what? It relates to like the divine right of kings and queens, which again is something actually relevant here historically because Nicholas the Tsar, who is Anastasia's father, um, he believed in the divine right of kings and like being answerable to nobody but God. And so when people were trying to introduce like socialist ideas or communist ideas or just in general, like a form of government or like parliament or whatever that didn't involve the king, he was not open to that and actively tried to repress it because he believes in his divine right to rule, which is like obviously fucking problematic. We, like whether or not, you're a revolutionary socialist. I can. I think we can mostly agree that we all believe in democracy, right? I don't think many of us are monarchists. But it is interesting that, like, this movie definitely plays towards that divine right, especially for Anastasia, you know, going to find her grandmother and, like, reclaim her roots and become the princess again, which when she does, you know, people are now bowing to her and she's now, she's suddenly a princess again. And it doesn't really matter that she didn't have the upbringing of a princess. It doesn't really matter that she doesn't remember her old life or that she's been in an orphanage or whatever, because she has reclaimed her divine role as a princess, which I mean, is in a lot of movies. It's not specific to Anastasia, but it is an issue. It's something that I think we kind of are seeing a bit less of now in like the intensity of this monarchist propaganda, but we are still seeing it in literally like every movie. Although I do want to do a disclaimer, not all movies with princesses are monarchist propaganda. I think monarchist propaganda relies on the notion that it sells us an idea that monarchy is the only really reliable, stable and positive form of governance. Because if you have movies that have a princess in it, but we don't really like talk a lot about her being a princess and that's not really monarchist propaganda she just it's just appealing to little girls but i do think it's specific to like selling an idea of monarchism well i don't i mean it's still propaganda in some sense it's not yes it's not monarchist propaganda in the Mm. sense that it encourages 
or reinforces monarchy as like the best form of government. Because I don't think many of the Disney films do that. I think what they do is fetishize and reinforce bourgeois aesthetics and and mm. these sort of these privileged ruling class lives as being the most desirable for for these viewers. So I think the monarchy is a stand-in for climbing the social ladder. I think when little girls want to see princesses on screen is a form of wish fulfillment and it reinforces that desire for the bourgeois. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And I think that um, there was definitely like a moment of scepticism of Disney princesses and like the princess fever among little girls not that long ago. But I actually think it was like criticizing the wrong thing uh, because maybe before like Frozen and Tangled, which are kind of the new age Disney princess movies like Moana and stuff, we were getting things like Cinderella and Snow White and Princess Jasmine. And we were seeing quite a different level of princesshood because in the earlier films, the princess is typically a damsel in distress who gets like rescued by the prince. If you look at, you know, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and all those kind of ones. And then it's only till kind of later where we have things like Moana and Frozen where it's more about the duty of being a princess. It's about like the responsibility of it rather than like the aesthetic of it. I mean, it's still about the aesthetic I of it. I think it's still completely it about is. the aesthetic. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to detract the aesthetic, but I mean, they've added on a layer of what princesshood is in, I think, a way to appeal to the modern kind of liberal feminist ideas. Like, it's their way of trying to stay not in the dark ages, but still maintain their branding of princesshood. Um, I guess to give an example is, like, in Frozen, we have, like, Elsa, Oh, and in Moana, we've got Moana. And they're both people who are, like, put into roles where they have to lead because of their royal lineage. And both of them maybe don't really want to do that. But then they're like, for my people, I will sacrifice. You know, Moana goes on this entire, like, quest to save her people out of love for her people. Out of, you know, it's her duty as their protector and as the heir to help them out. And then she does it. And it's like, I mean, there's so many thing pieces, especially before Frozen became oversaturated in the media, of these movies being, like, feminist movies. There was so much acclaim for Disney finally doing feminist films. When Frozen came out, the first one, and Elsa didn't end up with a guy, it was like, hell yeah. This this queen who, like, deals with her anxiety and depression, then saves her people and just, like, is happy in her role and doesn't need a man. Feminism. There was that. But before that, there was a lot of, I think, fear around Disney princess ideas with kids because it was like, oh, it just teaches girls to like wait for a prince charming to save them. Like the issue with Disney princesses is they just teach girls that they're going to be locked up in towers until Prince Charming gets them and we need more, you know, heroic princesses. And I find that really funny because I actually don't think that's necessarily the issue with that's an issue of like female portrayal in general. But the issue with like princess stories is not about how prince charming fits in it's about the fact that why the fuck do we need to be princesses like why do we love monarchy so much why is being a princess appealing because like mitch said it's about bourgeois aesthetics like that's all it is and i find it so funny that the that the moral hysteria was like supposedly about feminism but i feel like the real issue here is classism exactly well Something I find really interesting about Disney princesses, I think it really relates to film history, and this is where I can bring in some some knowledge I have. If you look at the early cinemas, 
Uh, and if you go to old cinemas nowadays, I'm thinking of like, for example, in Sydney, the State Theatre, you go inside and there's this beautiful art deco design all over. It's very like aristocratic. And it's something you don't really see in modern cinemas, but pretty much all early cinemas had this really beautiful royal-like aesthetic all around. And the big reason for that is because the cinema, going to the cinema, which was something that working class people did, was a way to escape sort of working class life. It was a way for a few hours of going in to a cinema and feeling like you are really part of this aristocratic aesthetic. It was a way of transcending your class. And you can even look at early films being about wish fulfillment. And that's what films a lot of the time are. They're a way of playing out dreams and fulfilling society's deepest deepest desires. Oh, yeah. Is that not like every fucking Harry Potter fan doing a self-insert? Me, can't wait for my Hogwarts letter. Exactly. So it makes sense that in a society that privileges and fetishizes the bourgeois, that fetishizes climbing the social ladder and having power, and also fetishizes the magic of heterosexual relationships, that we would come to see a lot of these animated films for children being about princesses. And you know what? It's really funny that you should mention climbing the social ladder because now I'm trying to think about like the stories of Disney princesses and the early ones are very much about climbing the social ladder. Like Snow White is like subservient to her evil stepmother and does all the cleaning and then she like is with the dwarves and still does all the cleaning and then she finally gets rescued by the prince and no longer has to participate in working class behavior because she's been pushed into the upper class by her marriage and now she can be like comfortable and happy and the same thing is with cinderella who all, the difference i guess is that cinderella isn't a princess initially she's a princess by marriage but again it's like oh my menial horrible life having to work and be around all these evil stepsisters and blah blah, blah. but i'm gonna climb this social ladder i've married the prince and now i can finally be happy and not have to do these working class things and then aladdin is also that the interesting thing about aladdin actually i think it's very it's one of the very few disney princess movies that's not actually about the Disney princess, like Aladdin is the main character, not Princess Jasmine. And even then he's like, you know, quote unquote, a street rat. And then like marries in and climbs the social ladder, which is his dream as a poor person. And now he can be rich, happy and comfortable forever. Wish fulfillment. Yeah, it very much is actually related to meritocracy or the myth of meritocracy and how like working class people just kind of want to convince themselves that if they work hard enough or if like things go a certain way, they actually really could become rich people which is obviously not true so here like i don't think disney is purposefully making propaganda trying to indoctrinate the youth although they have been employed by the u.s government in the past to make propaganda during the second world war wait i didn't know that really yeah between 1941 and 1945 while disney was on the verge of bankruptcy they were hired by the u.s government to make a bunch of anti-german and anti-japanese films uh, targeted to, you know, the American public and children. So these include, like, uh, I think one, it one's about Donald getting drafted. The other one is about the education system in Germany and how it breeds Nazis. So while Disney has uh, a history of propaganda, um, which is very interesting, I don't want to say that going forth from this, that Disney is purposefully indoctrinating kids with, like, capitalistic ideas of yeah the bourgeoisie and etc cetera, etc cetera. i think it's probably more so the fact that this is what disney's branding is based on disney princesses and they kind of need you to love princesses in order to make money off these stories and also like just from a marketing perspective little girls like princesses which i mean 
it's like a positive feedback loop because exactly. we like princesses because we're given all these amazing stories about princesses and even just like not even just Disney princesses. I mean, think about Barbie. Barbie was and still is Loki my life. <laughs> I loved Barbie movies. I watched more Barbie movies than than Disney movies growing up, which I think says a lot because I watched a lot of Disney movies. And not so much at the moment, but definitely like in the late 90s, early 2000s, they they are mostly princess movies. Like the ones that I can think off the top of my head that are like classic kind of golden age Barbie movies are, you know, Princess and the Pauper or 12 Dancing Princesses or the I think it's Barbie and the Pegasus or something like that. But yeah, the Pegasus one. The I'm not the one to ask. <laughs> Fucking uncultured. <laughs> no, but like, you know, a lot of them were, again, a couple of them were. I think the first... Barbie movie, like from that kind of time, was The Nutcracker, which is also most people's favorite ones. It's actually like pretty wacky. I rewatched it for the first time in like 10 years with a friend the other day because we had like a huge Barbie movie marathon, just like reliving our youth. And I mean, the animation has not aged super well, but the storyline is actually pretty good for the most part. But yeah, like in that movie, she's not actually a princess. She like is a princess, but it's, not, it's kind of weird. But the point is, initially, she's just a regular girl who goes on an adventure and becomes a princess. And it's definitely like one of those things where it is a bit meritocracy. It is a bit like, oh, yeah, regular people can become special fancy princesses as well. Although that one is in the dreamscape. But it continues to kind of sell those ideas in a way that Disney princesses also do. I think the difference with Barbie is it's really outgrown that. I haven't watched too many recent Barbie movies, but a lot of them are less so about princesses now and more so about like Barbie and, and the rock star and like Barbie diaries and Barbie and the dream house where she's just a regular girl who vlogs. Like it's quite different now. Well, I guess in a way, influencers have become the new royalty. Oh, interesting take. You're actually so right. Definitely. If we look at internet royalty, we think of like Kylie Jenner and stuff like that who are like, billionaire people again people who are seen to have come from nothing almost i think that's a lot of appeal of influencers i don't personally really know too many influencers i especially uh, know- you, aren't you one? Oh, ew. <laughs> uh first of all i don't sell products so i'm not an influencer honestly we could have an entire conversation about who we define as influencers but i think like influencers online are definitely seen as something to aspire to by a lot of people and they often sell ideas of like oh like if you just do this one thing that i did you can be as famous and popular and beautiful and happy as me which is very much disney princess propaganda as well right like very similar vibes so wow you're right i guess barbie didn't really outgrow damn i really i want to be a barbie apologist so bad i don't want to sit there and talk shit about barbie because i love it even though it's so problematic Going back to the influencer thing, I think it's true that influencers gain their sort of popularity because they're both everyday people who rise from nothing, yet are also living a really extravagant lifestyle. And in a way, that's how the Disney princesses of the past were presented. They were really humble, kind, everyday people at heart, yet they mm. were in these positions of power. And that's about the you know the benevolent leader and... So yeah, on and so forth. there's definitely an idea of like, I'm just like you. We're really not that different. It's just a matter. I mean, this is literally Barbie, Princess, and the Pauper, where they have a whole song that is called I'm Just Like You, where her and the Pauper, the poor girl who is like literally an indentured servant, sing to each other about how really they're not that different. They're just the same, which upon rewatch, I gotta say, is not. 
the greatest because I'm just like, wow, Barbie is really comparing her struggles of being a rich girl having to marry a, a really hot prince to like an indentured servant. <laughs> but whatever, it is what it is. But yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go slightly back to why when I was talking about Elsa and Moana because I want to talk about New Age Disney and I want to talk about Frozen in particular, which has made quite a bit of waves with Frozen 2, I think, in like the critic land of Disney for its very interesting plot. Frozen 2, for those of you who haven't seen it. Or need a refresher. Or need a refresher. Actually, is kind of about like reparations, which I feel like I never would have thought I would ever say. But it is. I mean, the first Frozen is like notoriously, I think. Well, not notoriously. The first Frozen is like, I wouldn't say a particularly, you know, quote unquote political movie. I know everything is political, but in the sense of active propaganda, it doesn't feel like much. It's more, I think it more makes a point about sisterly love and how we don't really need romance, although there is still romance in the movie. But the main takeaway from the first Frozen was about like wholesome family relationships and supporting those in need. Um, and people really liked it, obviously, because we still are talking about Frozen so many years later. Frozen 2, which came out, I think a year or two ago now explores quite complex ideas of land ownership and reparations to indigenous people and like colonizer history which is just very strange that disney went down that path but i can give a bit of context just from like the real world around why frozen was about that because the first frozen movie it's set in like nordic countries and it was criticized for cultural appropriation of the sami people who are uh, indigenous people from the norway sweden finland kind of areas i think a bit of russia as well like that kind of european northern european area um like the songs from the first frozen and the outfits and the land all that was very similar and they actually did borrow elements of sami people without actually really consulting them or including them and it was obviously a pretty big criticism because frozen is white as fucking snow (laughs) um but it is i mean elsa is literally like an aryan princess she's like white blue-eyed literally white hair um and every character kind of is as well. Like we have no POC characters and like the closest thing we have to not super white is like a brunette. <laughs> it's not very diverse. And people were very critical of that given the fact that they've literally borrowed like the culture of an actual like oppressed, you know, marginalized group of people. Um, and so Disney surprised, and I was kind of pleasantly surprised by this. I don't want to give too much credit to Disney, but they did like actually try and rectify that for Frozen 2. So they like actually drew up a contract with like, Sami people and like really made an effort to get things right and to credit them and to like include them in the process and so we get Frozen 2 where we actually meet the native people to like the fictional land that Frozen is based on who are like based on the Sami people including outfits and like they look ethnic look there's definitely a bit of I hate like forced diversity, but like I hate the term because it's just like a little right wing Reddit gamer kids use. But it is a little bit of forced and tokenistic diversity in the sense that Disney was trying to rectify a lot of the criticism that they received from Frozen 1. Okay. Now, the premise of Frozen 2 is that Anna and Elsa find out that actually they are related to the native people, their mother was actually native. Um, and this is why Elsa kind of has powers because the native people in 
Frozen are it's look it's very like noble savage stereotype like it's very like oh we're one with the earth and we sing with the animals and it's all kumbaya and then like the evil na- the evil colonizers destroyed us which like while it's like yes that is a way that we talk about it a lot there is if you guys don't know like an actual stereotype called the noble savage that like talks about the mystical native people and then like the evil colonizers and it tends to really pacify and infantilize um native people who obviously were not just allowing colonizers to come and murder them like that's not usually what happens um but yeah so already kind of i guess problematic in that regard but not so many people were as mad about that as they were about not having representation at all so i guess disney kind of got a pass for that um but basically anna and and elsa need to like save arendelle because the spirits are all angry at them because of the whole colonizer native conflict um now that they know they're half native you know they're suddenly connecting with the native people they eventually save the day um by like anna symbolically destroying a dam that her colonizer grandfather built to oppress native people and what's supposed to happen which i think is probably the most talked about thing with frozen is that when the dam breaks, they're supposed to destroy Arendelle, which is their home. Everybody is already evacuated. It's meant to be destroyed. And then Elsa comes in last minute and saves it with her magical powers. And then they all live happily ever after. And they're all friends with the natives again. And Elsa goes and lives with the natives and protects the forest. And Anna becomes the queen of Arendelle. And they live their separate lives. It's very, very interesting watch. To be honest, I was pretty shocked when I first watched it because I was just surprised by how much Disney was really trying to, like, actually very actively make political statements in Frozen 2, especially because of the association that Elsa has in, like, political movements. Elsa is actually a right-wing icon. I feel like a lot of people don't know that. It's the same way that... I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No. She legit is, like, Aryan. You know what I mean? Like, she legit is white, like, paper white, including her hair. And right-wing people online were using Elsa as an icon for, like... Nazi beliefs and like super right wing white like she was an image of white supremacy. She was she's used in a lot of like posters. She's used in a lot of online thing. It's a thing. It's a whole thing. So I find it, and this is like also not new information. So I find it really incredible that Disney like retroactively made her like kind of a person of color. But also that's actually a problem because you can't just retroactively make white characters POC, especially when like they don't fucking look. Like, they're not white. And there were criticisms of Frozen 2 for that reason as well. Just, like, the whitewashing. Like, how are they just, like, ethnic but not ethnic? And they get all the benefits of ethnic spirituality, but they're, like, legitimately colonizers. And it's just very, like, it's very weird white saviorist kind of vibes because Elsa goes off to protect the forest. And it's like, okay, so the white girl who, like, did not grow up in this forest is now just going to come and tell the natives what to do. I don't know. Complicated. However... There are also some very interesting kind of good things that Disney did, I think, as well, that are probably very relevant to our ideas of propaganda. Yeah, I was going to say, you seem like you're coming here from a very critical perspective, but surprisingly, I'm very impressed with this film. and I really liked it. And I'm someone who, you know, I watched the first Frozen because you made me watch it and I thought it was okay. And then I came to Frozen 2 because you wanted to see it. And I was like, uh, okay, okay. And then I was very impressed and surprised. I mean, I have plenty of issues, of course, but I think it does a lot of things right. And I think it's surprisingly nuanced and sophisticated. I Look, I agree. 
I started off with the criticisms because I think they're the most controversial things to talk about with Disney and they're probably what a lot of our listeners are aware of. Like it's commentary that I've seen everywhere, which is true, but it is not stuff that I thought in the moment. I think what I did think in the moment when watching it was, first of all, I was just impressed or like surprised, maybe not impressed, surprised that Disney was going down this path because in supposedly wanting to destroy Arendelle for the sake of saving everybody or when Anna makes like there's a whole song called the next right thing where Anna comes to the realization that the next right thing in correcting her grandfather's colonizer behavior is to destroy his legacy and is to destroy the society that they are built on which is Arendelle like she comes to an understanding by herself that this is the right thing to do to restore justice to the native people who are betrayed by my forefathers. And she, like, goes and, like, actually, like, does it, you know, because she doesn't realise Elsa comes in to save the day. I think that's what the problem is. But she doesn't know that's going to happen. So Anna, like, destroys the dam, allows the water to wash out, knowing it's going to destroy her home, but being at peace with it because it's what she needs to do. It's just the right thing to do. It's reparations, like, it is an understanding of, yes, my society was built on violence, so I'm going to tear down my society, which is, like, actually kind of radical. So, yeah, I, maybe I should have led with that, and I didn't, because I do agree with you, Mitch. I think it definitely has radical ideas that are so beyond literally most Disney movies. Also, what I thought was really good was the way it represented, I guess, the experience of colonization. Uh, and I feel like there was actually a lot of depth to it. So, for example, in the film... Uh, the king offers, you know, that the Arendelle will build a dam, you know, as a signal of, of goodwill. There's a treaty. But little do the indigenous uh, people know that it's actually purposefully been being built to make them dependent on, on, on Arendelle. And that's something that we have seen historically with a lot of, in a lot of colonization and, you know, when the indigenous cultures are being pillaged. Furthermore, what I thought was really, really interesting was the way it uses f- frozen as this really, I don't know, sophisticated metaphor. Because what happens is when indigenous cultures are colonized and their lands destroyed, the progress of their culture freezes. You know, they aren't given the opportunity to really continue their culture to progress or to change at all. Yeah, I get I get, I get, get what you're saying. I think, like, I kind of agree. Because it becomes more about preservation and less about growth. I think growth of a culture or evolution of a culture is a privilege that comes with having the time to do that. And I think when we look at a lot of colonized nations and nations that have been, you know, subjected to genocide, the, it, the, what becomes a priority now is preserving the culture. There isn't a lot of time or, I guess, opportunity to just live your culture it's about and and preserve and preserving it becomes an act of resistance as well. Like now, the resistance is no longer being and and growing. It's just being. Yeah, and reinforcing that is this great motif that you know follows this whole film, which is that water has memory, and essentially that's this great metaphor for the way that that the past lingers and that the actions of the of the past, the actions of our ancestors, have consequences that still affect us in the present and that we must be aware of that. So Elsa has to confront the actions of her grandfather and can't just simply ignore it because it's still, you know, reparations are needed and the implications continue into the now. Yeah, it definitely feels like a pushback against the whole get over it narrative that we often hear from like racists towards oppressed 
marginalized people that continually talk about the way that they have been oppressed historically. Something that I was kind of disappointed about with this, because I thought it was a great metaphor. And I feel like throughout the whole film, they were really, really leading up to something that didn't end up happening. And I think that's my key frustration with the movie, because we can talk a lot about the kind of whitewashing and the noble savage stereotype and stuff. Um, But honestly, I expected not really much more than that from most Disney movies. I'm not going to bother harping on about stuff that we already know. However, what oh, I was just I really wanted to see was so this one that I didn't see was when Anna destroys the dam and we get quite like we watch this like huge wave of water so destructively make its way across the fjord, it takes down pine trees. It's honestly like this really sublime image. It's quite scary because you're watching it and you just saw this really majestic, powerful you know, act of nature, like this huge tsunami thing that's about to wash away Arendelle. And I feel like that is what the metaphor to me built up to. Like water has memory. This water in this dam remembers what happened. It remembers the betrayal. It remembers, you know, the massacre of its people. And it is about, and it has a vengeance to it and a very reasonable anger to it. And it's about to destroy Arendelle, which is a society built on the destruction of like a native group, right? So it's it's powerful and you want Arendelle to get destroyed because you're like, okay, everyone's been like evacuated. It's like no one's going to get hurt and it's symbolic. It's this really important symbolic gesture that shows that they're ready to move forward. Then Elsa appears just in like the nick of time, just as the water is about to symbolically crash over Arendelle and she uses her magical icy powers and freezes it and saves the city and to me that was so disappointing because the whole movie we have been building up to this sacrifice the whole movie is about Anna and Elsa essentially being you know people who've grown up in white society and deciding that they are going to correct their forefathers mistakes and this is the first step you know is this is part of the acknowledgement of how the society was built on violence and to just take that away and Elsa save the day kind of makes it feel like it was all for nothing. Because in the movie, then the, the spirits are all happy after that and the day saved because they recognized that Anna was willing to sacrifice her city to make peace. And that's enough for them, just the intention. But I'm just like, fuck, this is when this stops being radical and becomes being liberal because it's not about the intention. Like, it doesn't matter if somebody like intended to not be racist or to not be problematic or they like they have good intentions what matters is the actions what matters is the sacrifice and we were like this close we were so close to getting it and then we didn't get it and the movie just moves on and it becomes all kumbaya and they'll become besties and like that's kind of how it ends well that's what i think the central i guess message of the film is that's the underlying worldview not that we need to make society anew but that we can reconcile the horrors and tragedies of the past with the way of society now and they can coexist but really an imperialist society cannot coexist with a native more egalitarian society like they just they can't merge well we're, like we just do not have to become fucking besties with our oppressors once they apologize to us like that's not it very much is sorry day vibes of like oh we're so sorry we did this to you and you know it really sucks and can we all be friends now and you're just like oh yeah well i totally appreciate that you're not your ancestors that colonized us therefore it's fine and we're all friends now and we what we really wanted was just acknowledgement 
that you guys did wrong now that you've done wrong everything is okay which is not true because they don't actually end up paying the reparations that they were meant to pay that they like that Anna was intending to pay and that started to pay and then just like didn't end because of Elsa and I, I do want to quickly point out as well that there is something telling about that because Elsa is considered the like native kind of connection like she's the bridge between the white people and the tribe because she's half of each she is mixed race and she has spiritual powers which are what her grandfather despised like that was part of his racism against the tribe was because they were mystical and stuff like that and he's and he like has a line where he says you know magic is evil it makes people think that they can defy the will of a king which is actually a true thing that the europeans thought when they banned african people from practicing their own spiritual religion so it is like quite relevant and elsa in the movie is supposed to be symbolic of that magic that her grandfather hated and so she has this connection with the native tribe, okay? And so I think making her the one who stops the raging waters is kind of fucked to me because what they were trying to say is it's okay. Her as the spokesperson for the natural land, she has, like, she's the bigger person and saves Arendelle. And I'm just like, this kind of implies that we as like marginalized people have to be the bigger people and accept apologies and not like make you guys sacrifice stuff. And also, the film isn't questioning the will of the king. It's questioning whether magic will make people defy the will of the king. The monarchy still continues. It's just that people won't become savage when they are given a little bit of power through magic. And also, do you think as soon as Arendelle figures out that there's oil under the native land, that they're not <laughs> going to come and fucking like destroy it and pillage it and use That's some so funny. bureaucratic process to say, well, actually, like we own this bit of the land, but we'll give you, you know, a few hundred Arendelle coins. Uh, for your troubles. Yeah, it's just, look, at the end of the day, and that's what we're talking about, it still, like, kind of is monarchist propaganda, but it's, like, weird because it actually has radical elements to it. But honestly, like, this is the problem with a lot of, I mean, liberal ideas is because they take radical ideas and then they fucking neuter them, <laughs> you know? Um, and then we're just like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. But you know what? We're not going to go too far. Look, I think Disney did do something there. I think they did succeed in kind of doing something there because even the idea of potential reparations these days is pretty radical coming from like a large white supremacist company that Disney is. But I also don't want to credit Disney for that because I don't think it was like a genuine Disney out here trying to like end racism and start peace. It was more like they probably understood that this is what people are talking about right now. This is what's going to sell at the moment. So we're going to make this movie with these ideas. And the film does serve in some sense a political purpose. It is meant to have a political message so it is propaganda because that's what propaganda means it's not necessarily a big dirty word it just means something that exists in some way to serve a political message like this podcast is propaganda like it is like we have an agenda yeah this is marxist propaganda and that's i guess what we're trying to get into this episode like how do films have political ideas whether intentional or unintentional and how do they unconsciously even become to serve a political message so at the beginning of this episode, we started with Anastasia, which is what we think are a really negative portrayal and serves a really negative political purpose. And now we're moving towards maybe something that has, you know, a bit of a middle ground. It has one foot in the negative, you know, reinforcing the status quo and some ideas which are a bit out there. Uh, and you have another example, don't you, of a film that sort of toes this Yes, line. my example is actually Zootopia because that was another movie that like really surprised me. 
Um, and I was not expecting much because I didn't know what it was about, but I just really liked his movie, so I went and watched it. And I was like, damn, this is, like, about racism. Zootopia is built on the premise of, like, a group of people in society becoming demonized due to the, due to the actions of the few. And it, like, it reminds me a lot of, like, people hating Muslims after, like, 9-11 and, like, the racism that we experience. And it is very topical, especially because it came out not long after the Ferguson kind of Black Lives Matter protests. Um, as well so it like came out kind of in a politically charged like racially charged kind of society and then it like seems to be an active conversation about racism there is like literally a scene where one of the because it's like it's about predators versus prey predators being the like marginalized group the like minority i should say because they are considered in this film like they make up i think 10% 10% or something of the population. But anyway, the point is there is a scene where like, when the prey goes, go back to go back to the rainforest that you came from to like a cheetah. And then she's like, I'm actually from the Savannah. And it's like, she's like holding protest <laughs> signs. And it's like, it's really like actually very reflective of a lot of like real life race politics that happen. And I think to an extent it does it quite well, like discussing because it even, this is, this is a part that surprises me the most actually, is it actually has a white feminist like plot device as like, the cop yeah so yeah. the main character judy hops lol who's a bunny and a cop <laughs> <laughs> judy hops um she's well she's a cop and this is probably this is the bad part of zootopia it's literally just propaganda it's all like not all cops you know it's that scenario but she is a cop um and a prey so she is like quote unquote like the whites of this movie the ruling class um, and then she befriends Nick, who is a fox, a.k.a. a predator, a.k.a. like of the marginalized class. Um, and they're like besties and they're trying to uncover the conspiracy, which is why like and the conspiracy is why everybody thinks that like the predators are bad. There's like, I mean, long plot that I'm not going to bother explaining. But then even when she like when they figure out what's going on and she gives a whole press release about like, a, don't worry, we're, we're working on it. She ends up using a bit of language that is actually like racist towards the predators without meaning to be racist and she's all like and then he gets offended because he's like are you seriously like saying that the reason that predators are doing bad things is because of their biology like do you think there's something inherently problematic about us and it's like actually a really interesting conversation because they have a fight she's like no 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 that's not what i meant and then it kind of comes to the surface that she actually holds um like unconscious negative biases towards predators and then she's like all crying and she's the victim and makes it about herself and actually about, it's about his feelings. And it's so like jarring to see that like in like a random kids movie because you're just like, wow, they really just talked about white feminism and the way that like white women are still kind of racist, but they'll like act like they're your ally and they will be the face of liberation movements. They'll be the face of your movement and then still like kind of be racist to you. Um, but the problem is like with, like with Frozen, it starts radical ideas, but doesn't go far enough with them. But then it kind of like they end up finding out that actually all this racism was, you know, it's kind of it's not these people's faults. Like it happened because of hysteria that was built by the government, which is like, yeah, reflective of reality. But once it's exposed, everybody just goes back to normal. And that's not the case. This is the problem with things like Frozen and things like Zootopia. Aside from Zootopia's obvious propaganda and the and like Judy Cops being a fucking cop, which is just another conversation. But they always like after kind of having these liberal ideas end with a, and now we are all best friends because we have found out the truth. And that's just not how society and racism work. So it's kind of disappointing because again, I mean, look, I think it's pretty good for what we're getting. 
Like, Zootopia and Frozen 2 are definitely, like, way more progressive than, like, any other kind of kids' movie that we are receiving at the moment. But they're not perfect, and they kind of can't be perfect if they're made by giant capitalist corporations. Yeah, I don't think a capitalist system is going to produce great anti-capitalist content. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That being said, every now and then, we do get surprised, and that's because Hollywood, I mean, to me, is just one of the most fascinating institutions, because- We often do see every once in a while a film that comes up from a radical filmmaker that does actually challenge the system it was created within. And I can't think of any other, I guess, deeply rooted institutions that actually have this paradox. Yeah. Like, do you guys, I don't know, have you seen A Bug's Life? Mitch? Oh, no. I mean, I can't recall if I had. Maybe when I was a little, little I kid. watched it like a million times as a child because we had it on VCR and all I did was watch movies all day. Um, and it's actually radical as fuck. It's literally Marxist propaganda. Like the premise of the movie is that there's ants who are the working class um, and they do all, you know, the food collecting and stuff. And they're ruled by their grasshopper overlords who are, you know, the ruling class, the capitalist class. And despite the ants controlling the means of production and like really not needing the grasshoppers for anything, they like do pay all the stuff to the grasshoppers and are oppressed by them. And the grasshoppers kind of do that in a way of, yeah, we oppress you, but you need us to protect you from even worse oppressors kind of situation. So it's very gaslighty, convincing the ants that they need them when they don't. And the ants kind of go with it. And then eventually the ants, like, you know, because it's the main character, Flick, who starts to kind of revolt the ant way and stuff. And there's this really interesting uh, conversation among the grasshoppers. So the main evil grasshopper, his name is literally Hopper, I'm pretty sure. He kind of points out, because one of the the other, like, dumber grasshoppers is all like, but sir, why can't we just, like, let this little ant go? Why are we, like, why are we so invested in crushing this one ant's, like, politics? And then Hopper is all like, that ant's actions may be, you know, like small, but if more than one ant starts to pick up on his ideology, if they all start to actually act in a unified, collective way, they can overthrow our system that allows us to have all these privileges without working for it. And I'm like, damn, they're really discussing like revolutionary ideology. Like he talks about the fact that they only have this comfortable life because the ants think that they need the grasshoppers when they don't. And the grasshoppers in this movie literally rely on like the surplus of like ant labor. Like it's very Marxist. Um, Hopper literally says, those puny little ants outnumber us 100 to 1. And if they figure that out, there goes our way of life. Damn. <laughs> and then the, the ants like eventually like actually develop class consciousness. They recognize their class interests and they revolt against the grasshoppers because it's all like, oh yeah, like we might be little and small, but together we are powerful. And because- Workers unite. Workers, un- workers united will never be defeated. And the funniest part is because like ants know how to make shit as like working class know also how to make things. You know, working class people control the means of production. We are the ones who know how to do things. But that's the basis of Marxism. It's not, you know, the CEO or entrepreneur that creates value. It's the labor of, its, of the workers that create value in a society. Yeah, like if you work in retail, it's not the CEO of the company that actually sells the items. It's you do. It's you that does it. And it's other working class people that make the items. So it's really interesting because like the ants kind of come together and using their creativity, like build this giant bird that they like scare the grasshoppers away with because they make the bird seem real. And then the grasshoppers are like, fuck, and that's kind of their plan. And it kind of goes wrong, but then it kind of goes white. And the point is the ants win. 
um he literally like oh something i just love the conversation with like this grasshopper telling all his other grasshoppers not to let the ants even like have a single thought about revolting because he says it's not about food it's about keeping those ants in line when talking about why they can't just let the ants have more food because that's what the ants want and i just think it's incredible that this film is actually like legitimately actively marxist propaganda it's just wild to me because it's like it's a pixar movie that i watched growing up i mean it is a pixar movie which are generally better than disney movies but still and there's actually another ants movie which is i mean more cursed i'm not sure if (laughs) have you heard of ants like literally ants with a z at the end i've heard of it i've never watched it the animation is so fucking they all have like hand feet like, I did hear about this. Their, the their feet are hands. Early DreamWorks days. It's very, it's, oh, it's a bit fucked. But despite being um very terrible, like, animation, it is full on about Marxism. Like, the workers, their worker ants, when they also turn against their supervisors, literally chant, the workers control the means of production. Really? <laughs> yeah. They they actually say that, which is, I mean, obviously, they also call their supervisor, uh, quote, pawn of the oppressor. (laughs) Oh, my. It's, like, proper, like, it's proper Marxism. And because, like, the main character, Z, he, like, from the beginning, when he's, like, talking to his aunt therapist, like, talks about his disillusionment of the system and how, you know, we're all just being controlled by our oppressive overlords. And it's, like, very much going through the existential crisis that any anti-capitalist goes through when you become an anti-capitalist. Um, but then, like, towards the end of the movie, because he's, like, kind of more of a, like, liberal anti-capitalist in the sense that he, like, is all like, oh, yeah, like, the world is fucked and there's nothing I can do about it as an individual and there's no sense of, like, collectivism. But then, like, at, like, the final scene of the movie where, like, this, you know, these biblical floods, like, start to, like, take over the anthill, like, literally biblical <laughs> floods. And then Z comes to the realisation that maybe by themselves they are helpless against their evil overlords, but together they can save themselves and then they all form, like, an ant ladder to get out of the, like, flooding anthill and all get out together without the help of, like, their overlord <laughs> and it's fully about like worker ants uniting like there are articles on ants and bugs life both being marxist propaganda for kids i love that i love that Ant comrades bro i lived on bugs life so it kind of explains how i became like a socialist it all makes sense <laughs> it all yeah. makes sense um but yeah i just think that's an example of like surprisingly radical like genuinely radical films because like these are also just animated kids films and i mean Bugs Life is Pixar. Like, most people have watched it. It was it came out in the Toy Story era when Pixar was kind of at its peak, I think. So, yeah, pretty wild. So, I guess there is a spectrum of, like, Anastasia being, like, full-on, like, erasing revolution and becoming, like, proper monarchist, capitalist, anti-communist propaganda. And then there's Frozen and kind of uh, Zootopia, maybe even, like, Moana, those kind of New Age Disney and other films that are kind of like liberal because that is actually what we are talking about right now and what people are going to pay to watch and what people want. And then there's fucking Bugs Life, which is OG, like not even a recent, it's got to be like from the early 90s or something. Surely. It's from a while ago because I had it on VCR. That's some OG shit. <laughs> well, I was just going to say as well, I think what films like that show us is that kids, I think, can understand more than we expect. You know, kids aren't unintelligent and kids can surprisingly understand sophisticated and mature content. But the issue is, is that so much media made for them, so many films and TV shows treat them like they're unintelligent and they just do the bare minimum because all they see when they look at kids is, you know, money in their eyes. And speaking of that, 
it's just so amazing when we get to watch kids' content, which is actually really quality. Yes. Speaking of quality kids' content, oh my God. Bluey is like the best kids show I have ever fucking watched. The target audience for Bluey is like preschool age children. Like it is made for kids under six years old. And I cry in episodes of Bluey. I made Mitch watch the season two finale with me. These are seven minute episodes, by the way, like just a couple of days ago. And I was like in tears. They're just beautiful. They have so much heart. They're genuinely fun. And they like all have a moral and they're all intelligent. Like you can call them propaganda too, because they're selling ideas of how like people should function, especially for children. You know, Bluey is about a nuclear family that just like has shenanigans, but it always ends with like teaching a child how to communicate or like teaching somebody that it's okay if you lose something or whatever. Like it's just about child development, but it's beautiful. I mean, Bluey has won awards. It's not unrecognized, but like it's upon watching the absolute mindless fuckery that I have watched because my sister is six years old and she has grown up in the post Saturday TV era where she has been watching Netflix her whole life and YouTube her whole life. I have seen far more bullshit than I ever want to see again. <laughs> the fucking trash that exists, especially on YouTube in particular, because of just not even just auto-generated stuff, but people making really cheap, really terrible stuff because of the ads that they're going to make money off on YouTube, kids just on autoplay on the algorithm. You know, it's there is an incentive to make trash TV because you're going whatever you make, you're going to make money off it. Mm-hmm. And she has watched some trash, let me tell you. But Bluey, which only came out a couple of years ago, she's been watching and it's, it's her favorite show. And she watches it all the time and she like repeats lines from it. And I started watching it with her and I was like, this is actually good. And you know what? It's her favorite show for a reason because despite being six years old, she does have an understanding of what she enjoys and what means something and what is interesting. The other stuff is filler content because she's used to having something on. Because, I mean, there's a whole other conversation we could have about the stimulation of children. But... It's just so refreshing and so nice to watch Bluey with her. And it's actually just wholesome as shit and like good and funny. And like even the scores, they use like classical oh, music. It's, brilliant. it's it's incredible. And there are like think pieces about Bluey and the way it has utilized music to expose children to art. You know, it's just, it's so lovely. I think what we're trying to get at this episode is that the, the content kids watch, it matters. I, I'm not quite... So simplistic that I think, you know, if kids watch capitalist or monarchy propaganda, they're going to become monarchists. It's not as simple a relation as that. Yeah, because even with shows like Disney Princess movies or whatever, maybe it doesn't make you become a monarchist. But maybe you think that heterosexual relationships are the only types of relationships that exist because you've never seen anything else so there are things that movies teach us There there are ways that society exists that we learn that come across in like any harmless tv show like everything is propaganda and kind of political just in not what it shows us but also what it doesn't show us i'll just end this episode with a quote which i think really sums up the importance of what we're talking about and i put the source for it in the description and it reads The role that Disney plays in shaping individual identities and controlling fields of social meaning through which children negotiate the world is far too complex to be simply set aside as a form of reactionary politics. 
If educators and other cultural workers are to include the culture of children as an important site of contention and struggle, then it becomes imperative to analyze how Disney's animated films powerfully influence the way America's cultural landscape is imagined. And of course, that includes the entire world, not just America. Everything is propaganda, and sometimes that's okay. <laughs> Cool. Thanks for listening. I think this is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so much for making all this possible. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. Really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.